This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll learn about protein with Joel Thuna. We'll discuss what a tennis tournament doctor does with Dr. Aaron Boynton. We'll find out about the best perennials to plant in fall with Melissa Cameron. And lastly, we'll discover great cookbooks you've never heard of with Naomi Bussin. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. Inflammation is an essential part of the body's healing process. But when it persists, it can contribute to a wide range of complex diseases, including type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and autoimmune diseases. New genetic research from the University of South Australia shows a direct link between low levels of vitamin D and high levels of inflammation, providing an important biomarker to identify people with higher risk of or severity of chronic illnesses with an inflammatory component. Alzheimer's disease can begin almost imperceptibly, often masquerading in the early months or years as forgetfulness that is common in older age. What causes the disease remains largely a mystery, but research from Tufts University suggests that common viruses may be triggering the onset of Alzheimer's disease. Shingles infections may activate dormant neurological herpes viruses, causing inflammation and accumulation of Alzheimer's-associated proteins in the brain. So remember to get your shingles shot. Not all stress is bad for you. It may feel like an anvil hanging over your head, but that looming deadline stressing you out at work may actually be beneficial for your brain, according to new research from the University of Georgia. The study found that low to moderate levels of stress can actually help individuals develop resilience and reduce the risk of developing mental health disorders like depression and antisocial behaviors. Low to moderate stress can also help individuals to cope with future stressful encounters. That was your Tonic Quick Shot. I'll be joined by Joel Thuna in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products on the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to The Tonic Magazine and a regular guest on the show. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I am doing just awesome today. Hopefully you can say the same. Yes, today I can. Can't say that every day. Nope. But 
You hit me on a good day. That's what makes today special. It's like Russian roulette, with Jamie, <laughs> right? Like, you know, you never know when the bullet's going to be in the in the chamber. Today, it's not. So we're going to talk about protein yep. again, because it's a good topic and it's really important and it's timely and it ties in with what you're doing professionally. Yes. When I think of protein supplementation, I think of like Schwarzenegger <laughs> and the muscle heads in the gym, right? Yep. So is protein supplementation just for bodybuilders? Well, if we were having this discussion, say, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, the answer would be definitely yes, that protein was just for your bodybuilders and your athletes, and not just regular athletes, it would have been pro athletes. That's because it was hardcore and it was hard to take. The stuff was not good, but as the quality of the proteins has changed and as our understanding of the health benefits of protein has changed, I would say now that protein supplementation is for everyone regardless of age or health status. Okay. So I know we've discussed this before, but let's go over why we need protein. Okay. Simply put in one simple sentence, without protein, your body would literally fall apart. Proteins are essential. You need to consume them every single day via food and or supplements to stay healthy. If you don't, your body will take its protein requirements from your body itself. Essentially, your body will eat away your muscles to give it the protein it needs. And if the situation continues long enough, it ends up in hospitalization and ultimately death. But let's be honest, in North America, that doesn't happen. Right. Protein is abundant here. But you have to remember, protein is found in you in pretty much everywhere, in your muscles, your bone, your skin, your hair, and every single organ is primarily protein. Okay, so it's protein, and I know protein is a macronutrient, yes. but it has constituents as well. So what is protein made up of? All proteins are made up of amino acids. Every single protein is made from a unique combination of 20 different kinds of amino acids. The different types of amino acids and the way they're put together, how they're strung together, determine the type of protein and the function of the protein. So amino acids are involved in every action, reaction, and activity in your body from making your skin, digesting food, repairing tissue, and of most important to our listeners, maintaining balance, strength, and mobility. Hmm. Okay, so if... The proteins are made up of amino acids. How does the body process and store those amino acids? It doesn't actually store them. What ends up happening is when you take in protein, mm -hmm. your body is designed to break it apart. It's, right. it's a multi-stage process. It doesn't happen just poof, it's done. It's a multi-stage process and it breaks it down eventually into single, which are also called free amino acids. Those amino acids then your body uses to recombine and create other proteins. So your body doesn't store the amino acids per se, it uses and creates proteins and stores and uses those proteins. And we're not talking one or two, we're talking in excess of 10,000. They don't know exactly how many, but we know they've identified at least 10,000 so far. You mean, when you say 10,000, you mean types of protein? Individual not, types of protein. Of which there's many, right? Correct. Okay. And if the body can't use the protein to build muscle, hair, bones, etc., you know, all your organs, it gets stored as fat? Does it get converted to fat or does it get expelled? Both. Okay. If your body has 
excess calories, be them from protein, fat, carbohydrates, any of the macronutrients, it will store them as fat for use later. It does that. At the same time, as part of the digestion cycle and part of your body creating, using, and using up proteins, it will excrete some as well. I know that as we age, our body's ability to process macronutrients becomes more challenging. And that's an issue with protein, isn't it? With protein, it's actually quite dramatic. The easiest example I can give to demonstrate this is steak. When I was a young lad in my 20s, I could literally sit down and eat anything I wanted, as much as I wanted, sometimes it's silly amounts, have no issues, everything is great, no problems. Now I sit down and I have anything larger than a small bit of steak and I'm regretting it soon after. I enjoy it while I'm eating it, but I regret it afterwards. And what happens is, it's not surprising, as we age, our ability to both digest and absorb protein decreases. The older you get, the more protein and higher quality proteins you need to consume in order to gain the same benefits as you were young, say in your 20s. Okay. How much protein do we need though? Well, now that's a fun question to answer. And the reason is that the numbers will change for every person based on their age, their health status, their sex, their level of activity, and their digestive potential. Okay. For the average healthy adults just trying to meet their basic needs, this is key, not for people trying to improve themselves or to reach specific health goals, it's around 46 grams per day for women and 56 grams per day for men. If you're active or you want to be active or you want to improve your health, these numbers should be viewed as a starting point, not an end goal. Yes. And also like the timing of when you take the protein, if you're trying to muscle build or be active is also crucial. Like, so for example, if I'm doing one of my weight bearing exercises, I know that I have to have protein within a window of like an hour and an hour and a half after if I'm looking to build muscle, because that's what the body needs. Oh yeah. It needs that rush to have the amino acids that your body desires to rebuild the muscle that you've torn and ripped, which is how we build muscle. The other big thing to remember is that the protein you take in ideally would be from a balanced mix of proteins from both food and supplements. Even though I'm a supplement manufacturer, I do not suggest that you get any nutrient. I don't care what the nutrient is, macro, micro, or other, just from supplementation. Ideally, you want to get it from multiple sources, that being food, supplements, etc., and multiple sources of each. You don't want to get just one type of food or one type of supplement because we as creatures are designed to have multiple sources for our body to use properly. Makes sense. So for getting proteins from different sources, what are the options? And once we go through the options, I'm going to ask you, which ones should we choose? Okay. Well, earlier I said you want to use high quality proteins. This is because as a general rule, less protein from a high quality source is better for you than more protein from a low-quality source. So that you're going, okay, so what the heck is a high-quality protein? Yeah, that's my next question. What's what's a high-quality source or a low-quality source? Okay, so to to throw personal opinion out the window and use science here, there's several criteria used to measure protein quality. The first measure is quantity. You have 
product A with 10 grams, product B with 14 grams, etc. Right. 14 is better than 10 generally. Now, most foods, even high-protein foods, are very low in protein. It kind of makes sense because they're foods. They have to have everything else in them. They have to have fat, carbohydrates, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, fiber, etc. In the supplement world, we can concentrate proteins because we don't need to give you all of that. Right. Here you can find straight proteins, something like hemp, which would be between 25 and 35% protein. The next step up are what are called concentrates, i.e. pea protein concentrate, where protein levels are between 40 and 60%. At the top level, you have what are called isolates. And these, uh, for example, whey isolate hit between 80 and 95%. Wow. Okay. So generally speaking, on this measure, you've got isolates as the highest quality. The next quality measurement is called completeness. And simply stated, being complete as a protein means that that protein contains all of the nine essential amino acids that your body needs to repair and build tissue. Now, generally, animal-based proteins, those are dairy, egg, beef, chicken, fish, etc., are complete. In the vegetarian world, you've got soy. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much it. Now, one exception to that rule also is collagen. Collagen, although it does come from the animal kingdom, is not a complete protein. Okay. Now, the third quality measurement is your body's ability to break down protein, absorb the amino acids from the protein, and use the amino acids. There are three scales here. Biological value, protein digestibility corrected amino acid score, and the digestible indispensable amino acid score. Each measures this in a slightly different way. Virtually all animal source proteins are significantly superior in this category to vegan proteins. This is not surprising as they are usually complete of the specific amino acid leucine. And leucine is important because it's what your body uses to build muscle and repair tissue. For these reasons, animal proteins have been shown to be more anabolic. And what anabolic means is they help your body repair tissue better than plant-based proteins. Now, here's a kicker, because I know a lot of people are going vegan, vegetarian, plant-based plant is yep. the big keyword. I'm using air quotes for that one. So what if you're vegan or vegetarian? You can still have a good quality, high-protein diet, and also supplement with vegan protein options. But you need to be careful. And what you do is, it's called combining. Yep. Essentially, what you want to do is pick an, a protein, say, pea protein isolate. Take that, and it'll be low in certain amino acids. And there's tons of information out there on Google and other places on the net to find out which ones. Then what you do is you pick a complementary protein, something like, for example, rice protein isolate. Yep. And you mix those two together, and what ends up happening is they overlap, and what one is missing, the other will have. And you can do that with two proteins, three proteins, etc. The big thing to remember, though, is that if you're doing that, you're tending to have to eat significantly more total protein to get the same benefit and a significantly higher amount of calories. Yep. So you do have to watch all that. And when I say significantly higher, when they did trials on this, researchers found that users who chose to go plant-based had to take in almost 33% more net protein than omnivores just to get the same net benefit. Wow. Okay. 
Well, one last area, whey protein, which I know is your expertise. Yes. So what are the benefits of a whey protein isolate? Well, when it comes to all those quality scores, whey is king. Whey protein isolate comes out significantly higher than all other types of protein. So from a protein standpoint, it's amazing. But whey protein also has one other major constituent about it, is that it provides you much more than just protein. And here's what I mean by that. It reduces inflammation, which reduces your risk of heart disease, diabetes, bowel disease, and arthritis. It reduces high blood pressure. It increases your satiety, making you feel fuller so it promotes fat loss. It helps moderate blood sugar, helping to control diabetes. It's high in antioxidants, which helps to combat degenerative diseases and premature aging. It improves wound healing. So it helps your body heal itself, particularly from burns and chronic wounds. It helps reduce cholesterol, reducing your risk of heart disease and strokes. And it's rich in specific fractions in the protein, which help improve your immunity. And you may have heard of some of these, lactoferrin, lactoglobulin, lactobumin, and all of those improve your immune system. Now, all that's amazing, but... If you don't like taking the whey protein, it doesn't help you. Correct. So up until recently, whey protein isolates were only available primarily in powders that yep. were thick, gloppy, and creamy. Yep. I'm one of those people. I'm not into that. Right. doesn't you, do anything for you. But me. you have a solution, right? We do. Now you can get the most amazing thing out there. Purely Protein is proud to offer whey protein the way it should have always been. Natural, light, refreshing, and easy to enjoy. It's Available in three flavors. Water, which has virtually no taste. Lemonade, with just a hint of summer sweetness. And watermelon, which tastes like you just tapped a fresh watermelon. They're low-calorie, lactose-free, gluten-free, GMO-free, and certified kosher. Get all the benefits of the highest quality protein without the downside. And it's made right here in Ontario. Fantastic. Fantastic product. Glad to have you back on the show. My pleasure, as always. That was Joel Thuna. For more information about his business, visit purely.ca. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss what a tennis tournament doctor does on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in the MLB and NHL, she has an extensive experience in dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. And it's been a while, but welcome back to the show, Aaron. How are you? I'm great. And thank you so much for having me back. It's been a busy uh, few months. We're going to talk about something that's right in your wheelhouse and was in the intro, right? Because you deal with professional sports all the time in your professional capacity. 
and the tennis tournament that just was, you were involved in, right? Yes, I was. It was a lot of fun. Yep. So you were tournament physician, right? Correct. Now, what does that mean? I know that's a term, but what does that actually mean? So I'm responsible for the health and safety of all the players when they come to the event. And so we have to deal with acute injuries, uh, acute illness when the players are actually on the court, and then help the players manage maybe chronic, more chronic overuse injuries. Do they not come with their own medical staff when they're on tour? You know, it's quite variable. Obviously, the really high earners have their own team, and they do have their own staff, but there's a lot of other people that show up at the tournament. There's all the qualifiers, people who aren't making quite as much money. They can't afford to have their own physical therapist. They can't afford to have their own sports psychologist. Some of them don't even have a coach. You know, they're showing up and they're getting hitting partners um, from the tournament. So the WTA itself has an amazing program that they've put together over the last... uh, 20 years. So in those instances, your obligations may be different based on who the players are, right? Or is your obligation to the tournament to ensure the health of the players? Like, how does it work? Sorry, I'm thinking like a lawyer. Forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Basically, my, my job is to make sure that the player is happy and healthy. And I'm helping the tour to make sure that that player is happy and healthy. So this isn't your first rodeo, right? You've been doing this for a while? I've been doing this almost 20 years. I wow. Think, I think this might be my 19th, so next time it'll be 20. It's been a long time. And the really fun thing for me to see is the evolution of how the WTA has really made excellence a priority for the health and safety of the tennis players. When I first started, there was a little room, sort of the size of the studio, mm-hmm. where yeah. we would have one bed, one trainer, and all the players on the tour. And that poor trainer had the responsibility of looking after all of the athletes. And it was really, really stressful. Now they've got a whole team that shows up at the beginning of the week. There may be 10 therapists, massage therapists. We have a couple of doctors. We've got an emergency paramedics available. And then as the week goes on and the players leave because they lose, they move to the next tournament, then the therapist leaves, but it's always staffed. And we've got state-of-the-art equipment up at Tennis Canada. They've done uh, really an amazing job. It's really fun to see how it's evolving. This year, one of the new things that they've put in is a mental health room. And Mm -hmm. Bianca Andrescu has really been promoting this. Yeah. So you can go and meditate. It's a quiet space. They, they've got compression wear that the athletes can use after, after a match to help with recovery. So it's really interesting to see how the care has evolved. And I like that. So your responsibilities could range from dealing with things in the moment, you know, injuries that come up. But are you vetting people in the tournament? Like, do they have to undertake physicals in order to play in the tournament? Actually, they do. So any new player before they actually play on the tour has to come and have a complete history, physical examination done to be cleared to um, to go and play. And we're looking for any potential future problems. Right. We're really into prevention. And, and this is one thing that the WTA has also done really well is they've developed great educational programs that have to deal with nutrition, psychological, dealing with fame, dealing right. with being you know a professional athlete, how you deal with the press, uh, how you deal with social media the pressure of competition. And and so it's really nice to see how they ha- are preparing the athletes right from day one when they come onto the tour. And then I may, uh, I have to deal with 
people who may get sick when they're on the court. Right. And probably the biggest thing that we deal with in August in Toronto with heat and humidity is heat illness. Right. So hydration, et cetera. Yes. What other sorts of things do you see typically? I would imagine there's a lot of ankle and knee and elbow and wrist issues. So probably the most common issue is is musculoskeletal. Right. Uh, wear and tear type of injuries. And uh, there I'm sort of, I'm just a... I'm somebody who's maybe giving an opinion and trying to give direction either to their team if they come with their own team mm-hmm. or to the tour therapists that are, are working with them. Okay, so in your role as a doctor, you you owe a duty to the patient, i.e. in this case, the player. So if somebody has an injury, are you giving them guidance as if they are your patient or are you sort of doing triage and saying, okay, you have to go see a specialist, we have to get you to the hospital? Like, How does it work? So I'll do the primary care treatment. Like okay. if um, we had somebody during the tournament who developed heat illness. Yeah. So we get, it's called a court call. So the trainer and myself go on the court and we have only a very specific amount of time where we can do an evaluation and then we can do treatment. And, you know, it depends on the, on the issue. We may do treatment. We may give some medication. If it's something simple, like an upset stomach, you give them an antacid. Right. But if somebody's quite ill with heat illness, for example... I might tell them, look, I recommend that you stop. Do you have the right to say this person can't proceed with the tournament? Do you have that obligation or right? I'm not even sure which it is. Well, as a doctor, yeah. I look at the player, and if I think that they're really sick and they shouldn't be playing, yeah. then I tell them that. It's ultimately up to them, Okay. and most people are pretty compliant. You know, I remember an athlete that we had who, you know, she was quite sick with heat illness, and she was a bit confused. And she's like, well, I want to play one more game. And I'm looking at the trainer like... I'm not happy with her being out there. And as soon as I said, look, I'm not really happy with you being out there. And I think she just needed me to say, you need to stop. Right. And then we take her to the training room and we treat her heat illness. Now, if she was sicker, yeah. we would have taken her to the hospital, but we were able to manage it in the in the training room. But for example, you couldn't say to somebody, okay, you know, you can't continue this match. Like you're too ill. And is it like a responsibility slash, again, thinking of like a lawyer, is this like a, is this a yeah. liability issue or is, or is this more like it's totally their decision? You're just there as their professional giving them advice. They can go against medical advice. Yeah. But generally that doesn't go too well. <laughs> you know, Has I, that happened in your it's, experience? It's never happened to me. Okay. No. It's never happened. Usually when you tell somebody that they can't play, they don't play. So you must see how the pros handle these injuries as opposed to like the common folk like you and I. So <laughs> so is it any different? You know what? There's such a wide variety of personalities and people. And I think that the key really for anybody, whether you're a professional athlete or whether you're just simple recreational athletes, right. is to get a good team around you. Right. And, you know, I see players who manage themselves incredibly well. They've got a good team. They've got a good understanding of how to manage not only their their body, but their schedules. And then there's others that are disasters and they're just constantly injured. There's constantly chaos. And I think it really comes down to the individual, but sometimes they're very young, especially on the women's tour. And the WTA actually made a number of provisions to help these really young players and right. limiting the amount that they can play. But I think that You know, you see young players who become very famous and it's like the vultures get around them. And sometimes they're not good people and and it's really kind of sad to see. Hmm. So is there any rhyme or reason as to why some would be more prepared to deal with like the health and wellness issues than others? Is it a cultural thing like from different countries or is it a resource issue? What do you think it is? I think that it could be partly cultural. A lot of it is educational. I think from your background, how you were brought up, how your parent, you know, your relationship with your family, and right. really just choosing 
understanding how to choose good people. And sometimes they're very young and they don't know how to set boundaries. And they're overwhelmed sometimes with all of the money, the fame, the new endorsements. And, and it becomes, they need a protector. They need somebody who actually is a good manager who can sort of say, look, these are the boundaries. Really the focus here is your career and your tennis and the modeling and the, you know, all of this other endorsements, endorsements yeah. and money. Yeah. We have to manage. So it seems all glamorous, but I'm, I'm guessing it isn't always glamorous behind the scenes. You know, there's there's some parts of it that are so fun. Like, you know, you really have great interactions with players. But the one thing that I find the most challenging when I see the tour is particularly for the newcomers, where they don't have the millions of dollars to have their own therapist and have a manager who's actually, you know, booking their flights, arranging their tennis courts, getting their rackets strung. That's a challenge. When when I worked with the Jays, for example, all the guys had to do was show up. The right. laundry was done. The sure. food was on the table. The, the bus was there to take them to the plane. They got on. They showed up. They got their massage. They played. These girls have a completely different stress, and it's a challenge because they're traveling every single week. They're mm-hmm. in a new city, a new place, and it can be kind of lonely. I would imagine. Okay, we have time for one last question, and that is, you know, you've been around the the tour for so long. I, I guess you have the opportunity to, you know, to see who you like and who your favorites might be. So, so who are they? Well, I got to say that Kim Kleisters is probably one of my favorite, and I have a little story. My daughter, when she was about eight years of age, she used to come up to the center, and she would be hanging around, and Martina Navratilova was there, and she would bring her little dogs, and so Hannah was in the player's lounge, and she was babysitting yeah. the little chihuahuas. So she was with the dog, and Kim Kleisters comes over to her, and she goes, oh, you know, is that your dog? And I know Kim knew that it was Martina's dog, and Hannah looks up at her, and she's like, no, no, I'm babysitting. And and then Hannah said, hey, you know, you want to play ping pong? Because they had a ping pong table right there. So she's playing ping pong with Kim Kleisters, and wow. she doesn't realize that it's Kim Kleisters until she sees Kim's badge about halfway through this ping pong match. <laughs> and then she just, she's like, oh my God, mom, it's Kim Kleisters. You know, she comes running downstairs and she's just like, my God. And every day Kim made a point of going over and saying hi to my daughter. And I just thought it was wonderful because she's such a wonderful role model. And then when Hannah was about 16, she came to the training room and I was looking after Kim and opened the door, and Hannah had the opportunity to meet her, and I told Kim how nice she'd been to Hannah, and Hannah was just starstruck, beat red, and couldn't even say a word, which was a first for her. (laughs) That's a great story. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. What do you want to talk about next time you're on? Let's talk about how to stay injury-free when you're starting a new workout program. Well, it's too late for me, but hopefully we can help others. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on the show. For more information about Dr. Boynton, visit drarenb.com. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, you can visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the best perennials to plant in fall on The Tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal. Proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. 
Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed, a garden education and design company. She's been featured on websites such as Farmer's Footprint, Florit, and Toronto Life, and is a regular garden contributor for Canadian Vegan Magazine. And I would add, she's the cover story in the July-August issue of the magazine. The Good Seed specializes in organic edible gardens, pollinator and native garden plantings, and sustainable cut flower garden designs. In addition, she is the co-founder of the Abermory Garden Collective, a not-for-profit that grows organic food and donates it to families with young children facing food insecurity. For more information about Melissa, you can always visit thegoodseedgarden.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm great, Danny. How are you? Good. So this is the time of year where we, you know, we're transitioning. We're transitioning into fall. Boo. Uh, and gardening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's work to be done in fall, right? There is. And, you know, I really always say in gardening, offense is the best defense. So even though it's August, let's talk about getting prepared for fall. Okay, so today we're going to talk about perennials, right? We are. So, you know, if you're a casual gardener, you know, you may know that fall is a good time to plant. I've actually been holding off on a few things that I wanted to plant for this fall. But why is fall a great time for perennials? So fall is really one of the best times of year, in my opinion. The garden is so lush and beautiful, and the extreme heat of the summer has started to fade. And so the cooler temperatures of the air and the soil make it a great time to plant perennials. And you want to think about putting perennials in your garden around six weeks before the first frost date. And okay. so if you're unsure as to when that is, the Farmer's Almanac can help you uh, figure that out based on your location. And then the other reason it's great to plant perennials in the fall is that the plant is no longer looking to put out a ton of new growth at this time in its life cycle. Um, and so it will spend more time on developing its roots than blooming, for instance. Right. And the idea is you want a good, strong root system because that helps the plant, for example, when there's not a lot of water. And if it has the great roots, then presumably it's going to be a more lush plant, right? Yeah. And then you really hit the ground running for the growth in that plant come the spring. Okay. So are there perennials that really should be planted in the fall as opposed to other times? Yeah. So some of the more common perennials that we think of planting in the fall are really the bulbs that flower in spring. Right. So tulips, daffodils, alliums, hyacinths, crocus. And while these bulbs are not traditionally considered perennial plants, they do come back year over year. And they do need to be planted in the fall to overwinter so that they can produce beautiful blooms in the spring. And there are also quite a few varieties of peonies that fare best when planted in the fall. See, I always understood that you're supposed to take the bulbs out because, you know, the squirrels love to, to chew on the bulbs in the fall. So is that just a myth? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some really great ways to protect those bulbs. You can actually just use chicken wire, for instance, and put that over the bulbs in your planting hole. And that creates a great physical barrier. The bulbs, when they start to grow, will just go through the chicken wire and you can then leave them in and let them multiply in the ground. So I presume you have to have like wide enough holes so that the stems and everything can grow up, right? You always want to have a nice wide hole, and then that way you can also plant. I think we chatted about this in the yeah. previous episode, but I really like planting at five, seven, nine, just to get that beautiful show of color come the spring. Fantastic. So how should we prepare the soil ahead of planting if we're going to be doing some planting in fall? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's always a great idea to add organic matter to the soil ahead of planting out your perennials. 
So compost and worm castings make a good addition to the hole when you're planting. And we don't typically want to fertilize our plants in the fall as it can cause new growth that could be susceptible, pardon me, to frost damage. So feeding the soil is the way to go to give your plants access to any nutrients they may need. Okay. So I know you're a woman of opinions. So what are, <laughs> what are your favorite perennials for people who are looking to plant in the GTA? Okay. So first, fall is a great time to assess what you might need to add or replace in the garden and to figure out the light conditions of where you have space to add plants. And then you should build your list from there. So I will give you opinions, but let's at least start with looking at our own backyards or front yards and saying, like, where are the gaps? Mm-hmm. On the top of my list would be perennials that actually bloom for a long period of time so that you can get the most visual bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. And those would be like coneflower, lavender, garden phlox, Russian sage, autumn joy stone crop, black-eyed Susan. These are going to keep you seeing beautiful blooms for like a long period of time. Okay. And how do you know which plants to buy at the nursery. So what are some tips, some pro tips, what to look for? Yeah, that's a great question. So first off, when you get to the nursery, I want you to be prepared to be a little bit handsy. I want you to get right in there and gently support the plant and remove it from its pot and take a look at the root structure. If you see a gnarly mess of roots, it's likely that the plant is root bound in the pot and it might have a harder time being transplanted out. Also, you don't need to purchase a plant that is in bloom, and that sort of seems counterintuitive, but purchasing a plant that is thriving in its pot and has good foliar growth is sufficient, and it will do just fine. Should you be looking for buds at this stage? Like, like how do you know? I understand you don't necessarily need to see the blooms, but don't you need to see sort of that ability to hold the buds in, in the stems, etc.? Yeah, I mean, for me, what I'm looking for is if there is new growth on the plant that it's looking really healthy. And depending on when the plant blooms, you may or may not see buds. So overall health of the plant, something that's not root bound and like vibrant new growth. And, you know, sometimes the lesser nurseries will have plants that they purchased in the spring and then maybe it's just been sitting there over the summer. So is it just the root growth that would determine whether or not you've kind of got one that's been sitting there as opposed to something that's ready to be planted? I mean, it's really your best indicator as to how long it's been in that pot and whether or not the nursery has been potting it up as they've been keeping it to sort of accommodate for its growth. Root-bound pots or plants in pots have a really hard time being transplanted. And you might see in videos on YouTube and things like that, people teasing those roots and disturbing them. Yeah. I mean, loosening them is a good idea. It does help. But at some point, you may just be fighting a losing battle. And so sometimes you will find these plants are discounted at the nursery. And so then I say, you know, if you're willing to take that risk, go for it. If you're getting a plant at 40, 50, 60% off. Okay. So when you say the root bound, is that like when sort of the roots kind of wrap around the edge if it's in a pot and it kind of looks like white around the rim? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And sometimes it's super gnarly, right? Like because some of those roots, depending on what you're buying, can be quite thick, not just the sort of white fibers around the exterior of the root ball of the plant, but like thick, dense roots. And those will just have a hard time because they've sort of folded in on themselves and wrapped around themselves. Once you do transplant them, they'll have a hard time expanding and sort of acclimatizing to their new location. Oh, that's interesting. I just assume that once the roots had the space that they would naturally 
for lack of a better word, branch out. But you're saying that's not the case. Okay. Well, it can. It can be the case. But if you had, for instance, more of a clay-based soil, deeper where yeah. you're digging that hole, it's going to be a lot harder than if you just had, you know, beautiful loamy soil. And we often have beautiful loamy soil in the first eight to 10 inches of our garden, but sort of further down, things are a bit tougher and more compacted. Yep. And so once you transplant them, you can sort of see signs of what we call transplant shock. And that's wilty, sad looking leaves. And sometimes the plants recover and sometimes they don't. Okay. So what do we do to care for the plants once we planted them in fall? Yeah, so we really want to make sure that we are watering in the plants sufficiently and also adding some mulch around them to lock in that moisture and to be sort of keeping any weeds that might form away. Uh, The other thing I'd like you to do is keep an eye out for some critters because usually in the fall, they're out digging in our gardens, burying their favorite treats. And if we've disturbed that soil they kind of come and are curious and want to know. So we want to make sure they're not digging up what you've just planted. That's good advice. We have time for one more question, and that is, what are the plants that we should avoid adding to our garden in the fall, whether they're on sale or not? Yeah, so there aren't any that are a hard and fast rule, but some bare root plants, so those are plants that are shipped from the supplier uh, without any soil around the roots, so bare root, only ship at the beginning of the season in spring. Mm-hmm. And so those are obviously preferable to plant in spring. And if you are looking for a specialty plant that does come for shipping in a bare root form, you may want to get that order in sort of later fall, early winter, so that it does come in the spring and you're ready for it. Sorry, I'm not familiar with that. Is that like hydroponics or something like that, or am I am I confused? You're confused. It's okay. So sometimes when we buy plant stock, and this could be raspberry canes or Ah. uh, roses, for instance, instead of them coming in a pot and, you know, filled with soil, they're growing. Yeah. They're just bare. Yeah. And so when you get them shipped, they come uh, wrapped in like plastic and sort of a medium to keep them wet. And those are really great plants to put in your garden. They do really, really well. But some of them only ship at certain times of year. So just be mindful of that. And if there is something that you want that ships only bare root, like leave the space this fall and order it for the spring. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. What do you want to talk about the next time you're on? I'd love to talk about garden cleanup. I know it's still early, but I think it's time to sort of dispel a few myths and get in there and get you ready for fall cleanup. Fantastic. For more information about Melissa Cameron, visit thegoodseedgarden.com. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss great cookbooks that you may not have heard of on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Join the Big Carrot for their Courtyard Market on Sunday, September 11th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. You can shop local vendors and enjoy an organic lunch special on the green roof. Samples, book sales, live music, 
kids face painting, and big deals. It's fun for the whole family. Admission is free. Stop by at 348 Danforth Avenue. The Big Carrot, your one-stop shop for everything health and wellness. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for The Tonic Magazine for many years. Since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hey, sweetheart, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing excellent today. We're doing something different today. We're going to review cookbooks that probably not a lot of people have heard of, right? These are ones that have, you know, for whatever reason, and we'll get into those reasons in a second, people may not know about, right? Sure. I mean, everybody knows about Jamie Oliver or certain, you know, chefs that they may see on TV, but there's so many out there and there's so many good ones. You know, I want to encourage people to look at some ones that they might not otherwise know about. Yeah. So why do you think that some cookbooks are, you know, immediate hits and successes and others fall between the cracks, as it were? I don't want to sound cynical, but marketing is, of course, important. You know, and there's a lot of noise. The one with the loudest voice gets attention. Right. And that happens in lots of contexts, and as it does with books, movies, etc. So if a book is placed prominently in a store or featured, you know, reviewed by publications that everybody reads or talked about by bloggers or internet stars, then it's going to get more attention. So there is that marketing piece and how much money and influence goes into that. But then also there are sometimes viral hits. And I think that's kind of interesting when that happens. Something is a small name, but it just gets picked up or somebody talks about it. And then more people try it, you know, kind of on its merits. You know, people try the recipes and they say, oh, this is awesome. And you know, through word of mouth, whether it's truly word of mouth or through the Internet, it gets popular. And so that happens, too. I think there's some curb appeal, too. You know, sometimes you pick up a cookbook and they're just beautiful. Like the, the cover is beautiful. You know, it almost looks like a coffee table book. And in fact, in our house, we have cookbooks that we use as coffee table books because they're so visually appealing. There's actually a husband and wife duo who shoot photographs and they are responsible, I think, for the vast majority of the bestsellers on the list right now. They go all over North America, including into the United States and do the photography for a lot of cookbooks. I think that makes a difference. Sure, books today have way more pictures and photography is is much more important than it used to be. If you look at old cookbooks, there is not going to be a picture for every recipe. And now when there isn't one, it's a bit disappointing because I think, how am I supposed to know what this is supposed to look like? Exactly. And and it's interesting because it really is a mindset. Okay, with that in mind, let's talk about some books that people might not know about but really have some merits. And you can explain perhaps why we're discussing them, what you really like about them. So what's the first book that you'd like to cover today? So the first I want to talk about is called Sicilia, and the description is A Love Letter to the Food of Sicily. The author is Ben Tish, who's a chef from London, England. And as we've talked about on the show before, we love Italy. I have many Italian cookbooks of different types, and I love them all. And on a recent trip to Sicily, where the food was just so amazing, as Mm -hmm. everybody says, when we came back, I thought, I want to find a Sicilian cookbook. Surely there must be one. I did some searching and I found there are 
a number of them. So I had to look at some of them in person to see which was the best. And this one jumped out as me as being the most interesting, but also accessible. You know, there are ingredients that we need to find here. There's certain things that home cooks in North America, at least, can or can't do. So, you know, I liked the recipes. They were evocative of the food that we did eat when we were in Sicily, yet I felt that I would actually make these recipes at home. Yeah, and it's a beautiful cookbook. It has gorgeous image on the cover. It's, you know, the spine is a nice color blue. It's just appealing. There's little stories and anecdotes in it in a very modern way, and it has all the nice photography in it. So I thought it was a compelling book. The one thing that struck me, because I I looked at it in advance of, of doing this interview, is the recipes are truly unique. I mean, the cuisine of Sicily is unique, but even within that sort of subset, like, I haven't seen a cookbook in a long time where there were so many recipes that I'd want to try. That's right. And Sicily is far, but yeah. it's very popular now. I didn't, I didn't realize yeah. it was popular. We thought we were doing something different. It's not that different. But I think more people will be interested in this cuisine because everybody who goes there loves the food and comes back. There's no Sicilian restaurants in Toronto that I could find. And it's such a good and slightly different interesting cuisine that is worth learning about and trying. So let's talk a bit about some of the recipes that we like or looked interesting. Sure. So generally, both in the book and when we were actually in Sicily, there's a lot of tomatoes, eggplant, nuts, almonds and pistachios particularly, Mm -hmm. lemon and orange, fish, pasta. That's what we ate all the time, including desserts, granita and desserts, because they're big on that. And the book reflects those flavors. So last night, for example, we made pasta with a pistachio pesto from that book, and it had lemon, garlic, pistachios, basil, and it was easy and it was good. It was slightly different than regular pesto. Genovese and pesto, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just, it was good, and I was really happy to eat it. It had some ricotta and cheese, and I just love that food. There's also a number of different kinds of grilled fish, so grilled mackerel with spices and an almond sauce and kale, things like stuffed grilled sardines. We can apparently get uh, fresh sardines in Toronto, and I don't know that they're always available. They're also available frozen, but that's something that's so delicious when you eat it there, and they use these sweet and savory flavors. Things will have, let's say, raisins, and but also fennel and anchovies. And that, that it may not sound good, because I'm not sure I like all those things individually, but, but it is good. You know, I promise you it is good. I know. You touting a recipe with raisins in it yeah. is, is a milestone. So there we go. I may pick out some of the raisins, but generally I'll, I'll eat it. I'll close my eyes and eat it, because it was just so good. Okay. Which book is next? Where do you want to go from there? Let's talk about noodles. That Noodle Life is a book that I came across by a couple of bloggers, Mike Lee and Stephanie Lee. Now, we love noodles. I love noodles. That's one of my top five favorite foods. Yep. It could be Italian noodles, Asian noodles, and this book has a different take on it because it's not Italian or Asian cuisine. It's just about noodles of different kinds, and there's many, many recipes, and it calls for noodles that are fresh, Fried, frozen, and if you're a noodle head like we are, yep. it was a good book because it does give you lots of options. What are some of the recipes from that book that you think are notable? 
Well, for example, we made last week a noodle bowl, and I needed some inspiration. We had soba noodles. I wanted to make soba noodles, but I didn't really know what to make with it. And they have a section on building your own noodle bowl. So if you want to use whatever noodles you want to use, here's some options of sauces to use. Here's some vegetables you might choose to put in it. Here's some toppings. This is kind of a mix-and-match thing, and we built it with roasted tofu, but also chopped up fresh cabbage and other vegetables that we had, and I made it with a creamy sesame sauce. We didn't have the roasted sesame paste, which is an Asian condiment, but he said you could use tahini, and we did, and it was good. So that was something that I pulled together, was flexible because I could use what we had in the fridge, but, you know, didn't, but it was still good, and I might not have come to it by myself. gave me some inspiration. There's also ribeye with black bean sauce and crispy chow mein. There's recipe for dandan noodles, which yep, one of my favorites. Yep, yep, yep. Lots of classic Italian and then not so classic. And same thing with the Asian, pan Asian of all different kinds, with many different kinds of noodles. So if you like noodles, it's a good one. Fantastic. Let's go to the last book, which is Kolu Cooks Easy Fancy Food. The author is Kolu Henry. She's a recipe developer. She's also a publicist. And this book did get some press, presumably because of her background. Yep. She she writes for the New York Times food, but you know, there's a number of people that write for the New York Times food section yep. and a number of them have written cookbooks, so how would you know? Exactly. Uh, what I thought was interesting is the, you know, easy, fancy, seemingly opposites. Because everybody's still interested in easy, but they're starting to entertain or think about dinner, as we always do. You know, what we eat is important. And I made a number of recipes from this book. I wrote about this in the next issue of Tonic, the September issue. So for more information, definitely read that article. Yep. But I I made a roasted red pepper salad, roasted mushrooms on top of, she calls her sour cream. I used yogurt, a delicious coconut rice. I love coconut rice mm. with cashews. And we made a smoky and spicy shrimp with anchovy butter and pasta and really easy dish to pull together and a full dinner. We made a roasted tomatillo and poblano soup with shredded chicken. So that used rotisserie chicken. So it's pretty easy. You just had to roast some tomatillos and, and peppers blend it together with some store-bought soup and shredded chicken and with the condiments of tortillas, cheese, radishes. It was really good. It tasted authentic. It really did. Yep. And then we made a rhubarb, which is called rhubarb mess, so like an eaten mess of rhubarb and meringues with whipped cream. And I like all those things. And that was also really good. I don't know if it was fancy. I'm not sure if I would call it fancy because it's what we eat, but yeah. it was good. It was very user-friendly, I thought, and somewhat similar to some other books that are out there, but this one was good too, so worth checking out. Who knew it? We fancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Hopefully, you've inspired people to maybe go to the bookstore and, and browse around for the ones that aren't prominent and see if there's something good out there, so thanks so much for coming. You're welcome. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Dr. Aaron Boynton, Melissa Cameron, and Naomi Bussin. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic Magazine. The July-August issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.